When we want to connect with each other, how do we cross the great divide of different worldviews, cultures or religions? How can we work together effectively? Well, first, we need a bridge. Welcome to Bridging Peoples. In this Bridging Peoples podcast, we explore the human side of aid and development. Join us as we talk with researchers and practitioners about their work around the globe. I'm your host, Deborah Cummins. Two thousand and nineteen is a year of expansion for Bridging Peoples, and I'm excited to announce that soon we'll be launching the Bridging Peoples Online Academy, a dedicated space to help you improve your development impact at the local level, wherever you work in the world. It isn't live yet, but it will be over the next few months. So if you're interested, give us your name and email address at bridgingpeoples.com and we'll let you know when the Academy is live. And if we're lucky enough to make it onto your training calendar this year, we'll be delighted to have you. In the meantime, sit back and enjoy this interview. Before we get started, a quick word of warning. This episode contains discussion of some violence. So if you have little ones around and you don't want them to hear, grab your headphones now. How has anthropology changed over the years? Not many people have been in the business long enough to be able to provide a first-hand account of this. But this month, we're privileged to talk with husband and wife team David and Maxine Hicks. David and Maxine first visited what was then Portuguese Timor, during the mid-1960s, when David was doing fieldwork for his PhD in anthropology. Since then, they've visited multiple times and have been witness to Timor's turbulent past, including when Timor became independent from their coloniser Portugal during the 1970s, their subsequent military occupation by Indonesia for 24 years, and David's first-hand account of the bloody vote for independence in 1999. He didn't bother to introduce himself, if I remember correctly. And then as we started off talking, what happens if, what happens if? And he said, well, if they vote for independence, then, and I quote him as best I can, it's back to square one. There will be a sweeping of of this country. There will be a sweeping of this country. We talk about their experiences in Timor over the past five decades what it was like doing fieldwork with a little baby in the 1960s, and also about anthropology and how it's changed over the decades and what this might mean for development research and practice. So, David, can we begin with you telling us a little bit about your work in Timor over the past few decades, perhaps beginning with when you first arrived in what was then Portuguese Timor? Well, it began in 1966 when um, Maxine and I went to to Timor for the first time. Early in June, we made the transition to uh, Vikek and the, the Tetum, partly Tetum-speaking area, and um, we'd rented um, what had formerly been a shop converted in, into a house, and that was the residential base for the next uh, year or so. And in 1967, just about 19 months after we uh, I'd arrived in, um, in Timor, 
Maxine left and I, I followed about two or three weeks later. And um, that was the end of our first field work in, um, in Timor. And Maxine, what was it like for you as the wife of a, an anthropologist visiting what was then Portuguese Timor? Well, um, not knowing what, completely realising the situation that we were going into. Oh, we'd never been to a third world country before, so it was a bit of a shock <laughs> when we got there. <laughs> and the, when we got finally the house arranged in the Kek, we and we just had a bed. Um, we had a, a, a pushchair, pram thing for the baby. No chairs, no water. We had to go to the river to get, to get water. So it was um, there was a lot of practical work to be done actually in terms of making life. Um, as comfortable as you could in those circumstances, and making sure the baby was healthy. And how old was the baby? It was six weeks when we, we left England. Wow. And um, so that was my prime concern. So um, when we actually got settled in, Andrew got um, help in the house who looked after the baby. Then I walked with David every day, um, to the villages where he was doing the interviews. And so so I did learn I did learn Tetum quite well, a little bit of Portuguese, and so I was there as kind of they wouldn't let David write down anything when he when he was doing interviews. So I was there as to try and remember <laughs> what they were saying. So when we got back to the, the house and, you know, after being out all day, that we'd write out what people had said and uh, according to our collective memories. So that was basically it. I mean, in the end, it was, um, it, it was really an interesting experience and I didn't want to leave when we, when we finished it. So after we got over the initial shock, then it was um, it was okay. It was pretty good, really, and mainly because we stayed healthy. Um, yeah, so that's what it was like. I mean, trudging through the villages, um, talking to people, and then coming home. And uh, oh, we went to lots of funerals. Um, when they got used to us, they kept inviting us to funerals, <clears throat> and so and then then and, so, and then we took the baby along too. So. But you know, um, they didn't mind us writing down songs and poems um or even words or even words of the, the, the trees and animals and that kind of thing but when it came to information for example how many how many buffalo did did, did you have to did your your group have to give the your wife's group oh no senor we don't know they they be <laughs> quiet they, um the secret there's that sociologist george simmel and he has his article on the secret um how um, people can keep a secret because they don't want, of course, outsiders to share that knowledge. He didn't call it sacred knowledge, but um, it's a way of owning and claiming something, um, particularly, of course, when you don't have too much or when you it's going to be taken away from you by by outside groups. So in that, that first period, we were in, uh, team in the VKEC, it was totally difficult getting information. Um, and... Um, People might talk to us, but as soon as we started writing anything down, then they, they'd just be very, very quiet. Um, but now when we go back, 
uh, it's entirely different. When we were in the um, the village of, um, when we were in the town of Vitek, there was the administrator, the administrator's wife, there was the school teacher, there was the school teacher's wife. Just four Europeans and no other European. Uh, and in some of those villages that we went to, they'd never seen uh, even the administrator or, of course, the, the teacher. We were the first outsiders for, from Europe, white outsiders, like Malay Putin, that they'd even seen, I think, in some cases. And, of course, they wouldn't have interacted with anybody like us. And when um, I told them, well, I'm here to, <laughs> to study your customs, learn your language, they didn't know what the heck I was talking about. If I, if I were doing the whole thing all over again with hindsight, right, 1966, I'd say, come here to learn your language, and left it at that. They would have known it would, what I was going to do, but uh, and they would not have realized fully why I wanted to know, but they would have understood that. When I say I'm your local friendly anthropologist, come to ask you all these silly questions, um, <laughs> they hadn't a clue. In fact, in my own culture in America, in the village, in the village I live in now, when they ask me what you do, I say anthropologist. They just look. I, I, I think that, that was a mistake, saying I'm an anthropologist, because that defined me and they didn't know what on earth they were defining, right? Um, and of course, I was trying to learn the language, which had been, of course, was exactly what I wanted to do. But nowadays, um, there'd be so many anthropologists there. They all, they, they've all, all these communities have got their anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, David, after that first trip in 1965-66, um, you didn't return for some time, is that right? That, that's correct. We didn't go back um, until 1999. Um we made a short visit of about four or five days together, and we were in Dili. We couldn't get down to Vikek because of the political situation. David, can you tell us a little bit about um, the political situation? What was going on at that time? Um, there were um, uh, groups of what were already at that time being called militia, and although, as far as I can remember, they hadn't actually killed anybody, um, they were threatening people, and the person that we, we talked to, who had been the assistant of the administrator in the 1960s in, 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 in Vikek, said, well, he could arrange for a car to get us down to Vikek, but um, he didn't think it was very advisable because of the militia um, activity. So we didn't, and um, then we came back to Stony Brook here, Stony Brook University, and almost um, upon my arrival, I found an invitation from the Carter Center, um, an organization that monitors democracy throughout the world in third world countries, um, inviting me to go to Timor-Leste to um, work with the Carter Center team of experts on Timor and um, experts also on um, democratic processes and voting and go back. Um, monitoring the political scene before the voting, which was on August the 30th, 1999, and um, monitoring the actual voting on that day. Of course, I accepted the invitation. 
and um, I met up with members of our group in uh, in Jakarta, and we flew to to Kupan. Um, so we we rented these two ships, and they took us um, to the border, and um, we stopped uh, on the border and um, spent the night there. Difficult to get accommodation because militias were uh, in the area and people were leaving Timor already at that time. But the next day we we set off and made our way down to um, down to Dili. And so we, we we got to Dili and the Carter Center had rented a fairly spacious building and that's where we settled in. And um, uh, from that center, uh, we dispersed to different parts of the of the country. And because of my previous connections, I went down to Vitek. I was there with a partner, um, <clears throat> the editor of that very good journal that's now gone out of existence, the um, uh, Far Eastern Economic Review. Uh, and and uh, he must almost have been the last editor. Um, but he was coming to Timor because of his experience in the Southeast Asian region, you know. And so we were the team uh, responsible for Bukek. And we were there for about four or five days, I think, interviewing all categories of people. Uh, local, ordinary people, chef de sucres, um, uh, the UN uh, personnel, uh, local police, local soldiers, and also um, a local thug um, who I think was not actually in a militia, but of a kind of a personal militia. Uh, he lived just on the outskirts of the, uh, the town itself, and um, he was really, um, really hard, hard nut. He reminded me of... Um, that leader in the 70s, I think it was, Idi Amin. And um, I remember at that time talking to this fellow and thinking, well, you, you fit into Armini's uh, household. Anyway, um, that was the kind of person that we talked with. Um, we talked to um, UN people. We talked to um, NGOs. We talked to government officials. Um, the head of our group talked to the governor. Of, um, of East Timor, and um, we also met with the leader of one of the militias. He was later arrested by the Indonesian authorities, put on trial in Jakarta for human rights violations and all the rest of it, but he was he, he got off. You, I'm sure you can you remember the name. Maybe? Yeah, he came, came to the Carter Center sat around a table, we introduced ourselves. He didn't bother to introduce himself, if I remember correctly. And then as we started off talking, what happens if, what happens if? And he said, well, if they vote for independence, then, and I quote him as best I can, it's back to square one. There will be a sweeping of, of this country. There will be a sweeping of this country. And somebody said, well, 
what do you mean by that? You said you, you're going to find out. Yes. Yeah, and of course, he was absolutely, absolutely correct. And we came back with the UN people because we thought, well, it's safe to do that. So we, we tagged on to this, this truck that had the votes and they went to the UN's compound. We went to the Carter Center and we, we got there to learn that our driver had been killed uh, by someone. Uh, they, they'd actually cut him up with, with machetes. He was our chauffeur. We had about four or five of them you know, for each area. And um, that, that, that was very sad. Um, but that was just a premonition of what was coming. Um, then we started hearing over the next 24 hours that the UN compound was under threat. People were being um, um, threatened. And journalists, reporters, NGOs, and so on, who could were already um, evacuating on that day would be August 31st, I guess. And um, so head of the Carter Center in Timor-Leste, he said, well, we've just got to go. And then, of course, for one of the very first, one of the very few times in its history, Timor-Leste became international news. It was international news, of course, in 1974, 1975. It was international news in 1991, in November, after the Santa Cruz massacre, for a few days. And it was news um, uh, as a result of the killings and the, um, the surrounding of the UN um, compound in Dili in 1999. Wow, what a story. Um, so, Maxine, I'm wondering if we can shift gears a little bit and talk about some of your impressions of the situation of women in Timor-Leste, both um, during your visits in the 1960s and also during some of your more recent visits. Uh, what, what, what are the lives of women like there? Well, there were two categories of women, I would say, that we came into contact with. There were the women who lived in the villages and then the, the women, who, the girls who were the daughters of Leo Rice who lived in Portuguese-style houses in Rikek. Leodais being the kings. The kings, yeah. And they were, so we had quite a, a close connection with the, the, I did anyway, with the girls who, who were the daughters of the Urais who used to visit us. Um, and, and then there were the women in the villages, who, of course, were the ones who worked in the fields, who made the pottery, who did the weaving, and to some extent, that has, I, I don't think that there are still, it still remains very much the same for some of those women, that we've gone back to the villages that we used to go to, and the women still do the weaving, they live in, and the people who was, one person who was an informant of David's, uh, I mean, his house, his life, does not seem to me to have changed that great, greatly. Um, Davi. Davi, yeah, him and he lives in extreme poverty. Um, he works in the field. He has enough money to send one of his children to, to school, but um, it doesn't educate the girls. Uh, so, in, in that respect, some of the in the very rural areas, I don't know how much progress there's been. Yeah, I mean, the women, the women in the sixties, they work in the fields, take their produce to the market. Um, get a few, you know, coins from from selling their odds and ends, buying a few things. But the, the, it was it was a very hard life, and the, the, the poverty 
is extreme and I think in some cases it still is. Yeah, a, a, a lot of our research has found similar sorts of things. Um, so, David, given uh, the raft of experience both you and Maxine have um, had over the years, can you shed some insights? How has anthropology, the discipline of anthropology, changed over these decades? Whereas when I went into anthropology in the 1960s, for the majority of students, the goal was to go to some non-literate, local, small-scale society and do fieldwork. Preferably a society that had never received any ethnographic interest before. And if you were to read over the pages of um, journals like the American anthropologist, you'd find that very much substantiated. If you look at the pages of that journal today and its companion journal, the American ethnologist, and others as well, you'll find that the attention has shifted totally. In the case of anthropology in very, very general terms, you'll find um, in American anthropology a great deal of interest in American culture, uh, trends, um, things that are happening in this country, um, values, attitudes, how they are changing. Um, uh, you'll also find a great interest in various current sociological events. Um, among them, of course, immigration, which is a big topic of interest in itself. Years ago, there was something called Occupy Wall Street, the movement. Um, that, perhaps, in a sense, was almost at the fulcrum of this change in emphasis this change in, in, in attention. Um, after that, any kind of movement that um, came up from the West, um, and, in, and of course this embraces now the latest one, Me Too, is um, fodder for anthropological study. Uh, so much so that anthropology and sociology really have, have coalesced. Do you think that's a positive thing? I don't really know if it's positive or not. Um, these local communities... You know, this uh, mythological local communities that uh, have been, unt- been untouched never really existed. Um, it's a romantic, perhaps, notion. Uh, so what's happened is, is really inevitable. But where you get differences between groups of people, I think you're always going to get um, unusual individuals who are interested in knowing what, as it were, the other does, the other thinks, um, and um, maybe his reaction to their own conventional lives. Just go in and see what it's like to be somebody of that group. Mm. Um, I think probably as time goes on, anthropology, um, sociology, and I also think history as well Mm. will converge. Because when I was starting out, one of the big fashions was structural anthropology, which I've followed myself, practiced a lot. Um, and although it never really denied history, history was not really much of a consideration from that point of view. Yeah. But now, particularly, well, now when I think of Timor, if we can just be specific about Timor looking back, I realized just how much greater understanding you get of what people are doing if you can see how things came to be what they are. Now you can, now we can know it because 
when I reflect back upon the 1960s, we have really a lot of good information, a lot of it, um, that we call ethnographic information, um, coming from Portuguese times right up to the present. And that combined with historical perspectives, the work that political scientists are doing, the work that NGOs are doing, the work that a lot of researchers are doing in Timor. If you put this all together, um, the result is a greater enlightenment as to, to what it means to be a person in Timor today. Mm. So I think this exclusive part partitioning of, of these different disciplines, history, sociology, social anthropology, geography, if you like to, um, which was very present in the 70s, um, has now gone, has now gone. Um, and so, by all means, um, make use of what the different tools and these different specialities have come up with over the years. But um, don't feel that you're in some kind of way um, doing something impure um, or not following the faith. If you just forget about these artificial boundaries and just try to solve whatever problem that you're really interested in. And in this way, too, of course, um, what used to be called applied anthropology and uh, theoretical anthropology also have come together because persons who are doing work as consultants or in development are also part of the scene. They're also influencing and being influenced by the community that they're, that they're operating in. And um, all this is interesting stuff. And if you're interested in community life, you're going to be interested. Um, when I was there in 66, um, I always wished I'd been there in 1866. You know, the time of Forbes visitations. Yeah, it's such an interesting point that you raised, David, and I think really important. I, I, I know in our work, we tend to take a bit of a smorgasbord approach, really, just looking for what will work for um, whatever project, whatever research project we're doing. Yeah, smorgasbord, that's exactly it. And also, um, I'm interested in literature and how individuals themselves care to cast their lives um, for many, of course, it would be in an oral form, like as Maxi mentioned, David Suarez. I mean, he's illiterate, um, but many Timorese, of course, as you know, are perfectly capable of um, of, of writing um, um, uh, in, in Portuguese as well as in Tetum, and some indeed in, in English. I mean, the student writes a case in point. He's, he writes better English than a lot of my students, um, and so I'm interested in um, the way in which Gradually, you're getting educated Timorese writing um, about their lives, um, either factually or also um, fictionally. And there's, uh, in, in, um, in Lisbon now, there's a, a novelist. He's, I think, the first novelist, as I know, he's the only novelist um, writing, um, uh, writing today. So there's an example of another discipline literature coming into the equation, history, literature, political science, anthropology, um, um, sociology. Mm, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's fascinating to look at how the different um, academic disciplines are coming together and interacting in these, in these weird and wonderful ways. It, David, what do you think about um, the relationship between 
academic research and the types of research, development research, which is done by NGOs, by international organisations? From what I, I, I understand, um, the goal is the same, to get information and to understand what's going on. Um, and I would imagine it's, it's, it's possible for somebody um, who is a practitioner and somebody who is a, um, um, a scholar, if you like, uh, to flip back and forth between both domains without any um, hindrance at all. When I was working with the Carter Center, um, I was essentially a practitioner, I guess, and the kinds of questions that I was asking, the kind of questions that I would also ask if I was a, um, a scholarly researcher, um, one was, of course, being put to practical ends, the other um, would not necessarily be put to practical ends. Uh, I, I don't see all that much much difference. In Washington, they, they seem to flip between these poles. There's a period of time when it's all top down. Then somebody says, hey, this doesn't work. Um, and enough voices are raised, influential voices are raised. And so then you find it's the, the great craze then is for bottom up, bottom up. Um, and then that seems to come to an end. And then it's back, back to top down again. That's how I tend to, that's how I tend to see it. And do you think there's a way of getting past this tendency towards flipping between these two binaries, David? And it, it seems um, so unhelpful to be trapped in this idea that it must all be bottom up or it must all be top down. Can you see um, a third way, a middle way? Well, I think it depends upon the imagination and the intelligence of the person who's actually doing the work. Um, and the way in which they might, they would say, well, this is a good idea coming from Washington. It's Even though it comes from Washington, it's still a pretty good idea. Let's try it out. Um, but to try it out, being aware that it may have to be modified, changed, perhaps even abandoned, if it doesn't work, it doesn't make sense at the local community level. Um, it's not the people who are wrong. Um, it's the... It would be the top-down attitude, I think, that is wrong. And so this is where it depends upon the, the development worker themselves using their imagination to combine the two, saying what is feasible, what's not feasible, is this doable, is it not too doable, um, and just hoping that they don't find themselves in trouble with the folks up above who say, well, we told you to do this and we wanted these people to do that and they're not doing it. Why the hell is, is, is that so? Um, some of the ideas that come out of the big international agencies are, are good and valid. Um, others are not so good. And sometimes I think the, the mistakes that are made just result from the um, lack of knowledge. But as I say, I've, I've got no special, special knowledge about this. We hope you enjoyed this interview. If you did enjoy it and think others might too, please do share amongst your friends and networks. Next month, we'll be shifting our focus to Syria, talking with Syrian community worker Karam Hili about his work in some of the opposition-controlled areas. I don't know if you can imagine how a trainer or community organiser will go to a community in a war where there is no structure, but there is no resources, 
and you will tell people, let's contribute, let's uh, mobilize our resources. It will be weird. Uh, so to convince them that they can really uh, make change uh, in their society, it really requires a huge change in the mindset. But uh, practices really uh, can change. Here we'll be talking about both the importance and some of the challenges in doing community work in a conflict zone, trying to nurture a sense of hope amongst young people when most of their lived experience has been defined by war. And don't forget, if you're interested in hearing more about our upcoming Bridging Peoples Online Academy, give us your name and email address at bridgingpeoples.com and we'll let you know as soon as it's live. I'm your host, Deborah Cummins. Thanks for joining me. This is a Bridging Peoples podcast.